This OPI podcast was recorded at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. The Car Guys Report Informed Automotive is up next, but first, take a listen to this other fine OPI show. I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. And on the next Back to You, we're going to find out a lot of things about the art of fine cooking, but we're not going to find it out from Steve. One thing I do know that we learned, and I'm glad that it was reinforced, you've got to keep your feet out of the salad. We're going to talk to private chef Mike Cabisa. You're going to get hungry when you listen. To Back to You. Back to You with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. You can find Back to You on Spotify, opishows.com, or wherever you find podcasts. Just search for Radio Misfits. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Car Guys Report Informed Automotive. Thanks so much for taking us along for the ride. Certainly glad to have you with us. I'm Mark Vernon, along with Lou Costable, and this is the Car Guys Report Informed Automotive. You're uh, tuning in for yet another exciting episode of the Car Guys Report. And speaking of exciting, Lou, I uh, alluded, alluded, get it, to... um, Go, man, go. Yeah, go, man, go. You got it. I alluded to uh, a story about a battery. We had a battery delivery right in the middle of last uh, uh, our last episode, and this is a, a true story. It just actually happened to me uh, yesterday. I was out for a, a nice Sunday drive in your favorite car of mine, the 58 Impala, and uh, it was uh, pretty much... Uh, nearing the Car Guys Report warehouse, so I decided to uh, stop in and uh, squirt a little bit of gas into the tank to uh, to uh, fill it up a little bit. And um, it's funny because whenever you pull into a gas station, you know there was like two people that started talking to me right away about the car, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I always answer their questions and everything. So I finish my gas purchase and I get in the car, I turn the key, and nothing. So then all of a sudden you feel like a knob, you know, because you're like, okay, you're in the gas station, you're in this cool car, your car's not starting, and you got all these people checking out your car. And then, of course, everybody that's checking out your car suddenly becomes an ASC certified mechanic telling you what's wrong with your car. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's got to be the generator. No, 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 it wouldn't. It's it's the battery. Oh, maybe it's the starter, you know? It's like, (laughs) so what I did... And it was weird because the car was, you know, running fine. And whenever I take any of my cars out on a exercise run or to a car show or whatever, um, I always have my uh, battery jump box with me. And for those uh, listeners that might not be totally familiar with, with jump boxes, that's what I call them. That's kind of the, the catch-all term. It's basically it's a portable battery jump starter. It's got an internal battery in it. They make a bunch of different versions these days. They make very compact ones that have high-energy lithium-ion batteries in them. And then this one that I, I have two of them. I actually have one of the small ones, and I have this big one. And this is the big one is the one I take to the, to the car shows and keep in my car when I'm driving. Um, it's got a just a traditional like big lead acid battery in it. It's a heavy sucker, and it's got really nice um, uh, battery clamps on it. They they clamp on real well. So I, you know, obviously the first thing I'm going to try is hook the jump box up and see if the car will start. So I open the hood and put the jump box on, and you know, the car cranks slowly for about a second or two, then it fires up. I'm like, okay, cool, okay. Then something's wrong with the battery. So. 
Uh, And this is the weird thing, because this has not happened to me before when a battery has gone out, but I think I have a reason why it did it. So I unhook the um, jump box, and the car dies. I'm like, okay, well, that's weird. So... You know, at this point, I'm not trying to diagnose anything. I just want to get the hell out of there and and get the car over to my uh, mechanic. And so what I decided to do, and you can only do this in a 50s car, Lou, I'm telling you, because uh, they had what was called space underneath the hood. Um, I hooked the uh, jump box back up to the battery, routed the cables over the radiator frame, and just dropped the the jump box down in front of the radiator, and it rested on like a lower part of the frame, like splash panel. And I was able to close the hood and drive away like that. So the jump box was keeping the car running. And it was hilarious that I was actually able to, to do that because you could not do that with a modern car at all. There's no space under the hood to do something like that. So luckily, I was only a couple miles actually away from from where I needed to be. And I think what happened, because the car's fixed, I'm actually picking it up after uh, this episode is over. They put a new battery in, and, and a couple things is the battery that was in there was only 34 months old. It had a 60-month warranty, so obviously I got money back on that. But that battery, since day one, had been um, on a battery tender. Uh, basically, I think what happened, and I've had this happen before with batteries, and it, it, it adds up when you start thinking about it, is I think the battery just had a direct short in it because, A, it happened all of a sudden. It didn't have any, like, it wasn't like it was, you know, weak or something like that. You know, if a battery decides to short, it shorts out, and it's not going to work. And then sometimes they can short out, and they then they start working again because one of the plates moves around or something like that. But this one must have just been a dead broken type short inside it and you know obviously the bat the the engine wouldn't keep running with no battery in there because it was shorted out so um that's what happened but luckily the car's fine it's got a new battery in it now like i said i'm picking it up but um you know it's just always the the adventures but it's funny that this was not related to the car's age you know it wasn't like a fuel pump failure or something like that it was just a a relatively new battery 34 months old that just decided to take a crap all of a sudden and nearly left me stranded. So the watchword here is, I mean, I, I can't say enough about having a jump box at the ready in whenever you're driving, you know, a collector car or a classic car or, a, a you know, a, a special interest auto because they can really save your bacon. They really can. Because here I could have gotten a tow. And I would have been reimbursed because I have towing on my classic cars. I have towing insurance. But it's just the hassle of doing that and the fact that I was able to just plop that that jump box in and drive away. It was amazing. So, And then you don't feel like a knob either at the gas station waiting for the tow truck. I think we've all been there, right? I am. Yeah, and you just feel weird. You're like, because everyone's looking at you, and it's on a busy street, and people are driving by and honking at you, and you're like, just get me out of here. Well, usually it's it's in some kind of a very nice car, too, and you're sitting on the side of the road, and they're like, yeah, I'm glad we didn't buy that thing. Yeah, yeah that's happened to me before, too. I remember one time my Saab, uh, many years ago, one of the Saabs I had uh, broke down. And, you know, I'm pushing it off into a parking lot and some some Yahoo in a pickup truck yells out like, hey, that's what you get for buying a foreign car or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, up yours, buddy. <laughs> 
But um, so that was the trials and tribulations of the 58 Impala there, Lou. Just wanted to share that story with you. And also um, spotted a couple of weeks ago, quite close to the Car Guys Report warehouse, I saw a uh, a car carrier that was uh, unloading. I don't know if they were picking up or dropping off, but they were uh, unloading uh, an interesting uh, melange of uh, vehicles. They had two Harley Davidson motorcycles. They had a 72 Blue Corvette. A very nice-looking 69 Impala Fastback in blue. Those are neat-looking cars. And I don't know how this one fit into the the realm of things, but a big black Mercedes-Benz Maybach sedan. So that was all uh, within uh, spitting distance of the Car Guys Report warehouse. I wanted to definitely uh, talk about those cars. You don't see too many Maybachs on the road, and it's always a car that stands out when you see it just because it looks like basically what a Maybach is is it's a – it's it's Mercedes top tier of 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 brands, and it's basically like a, a super super sized S class. They lengthen the wheelbase. Um, I think it's got the V twelve in there, and then the interiors are just you know beyond opulent. It's like a private jet inside there, so you don't see too many of those uh, on the road. And this one obviously wasn't moving, but it was being either dropped off or picked up. So wanted to uh, talk about uh, that as well. If you like the Car Guys Report, be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. It's on Spotify. You can go to opishows.com. You can follow us at Car Guys Podcast on Twitter. And, of course, you can email us at any time with your suggestions, your comments, your rants, your raves, uh, anything you want. Email us at carguysreport at hotmail.com. You know, Lou, on the program, we talk uh, a fair amount about Ferraris. I've never owned a Ferrari. I came close to buying one uh, five years ago before I bought my Aston Martin. And we don't want to beat a dead horse, of course, but I don't think that you can be a true car guy and not at least appreciate you know, what Ferraris are all about. And this comes from our friends over at Haggerty. I know that uh, you're kind of tight with McKeel Haggerty, I believe is his name. And well, I've, I've met him a couple of times. Well, but, you know, was, you're Lou Costable. Come on. He knows my name. I know his name. I'm, I'm always honored to see him, and he's very bright, and it's a fun time to talk to him. Well, next time, you'll, you'll have the Car Guys Report business card in your, in your Hi, I'm Lou uh, packet there, and he'll notice that, and he'll of go, course. Lou, how you doing? <laughs> But anyway, Haggerty, uh, you know, they track, uh, they're an insurance company, but they track uh, values of collector cars and and classics. And these are four Ferraris that they feel are underappreciated at the the, uh, moment. Um, Underdog is another way to uh, uh, categorize these cars. Can I guess? Uh, Sure, yeah, go ahead. Because I'm not a big, I'm not a, what's the term, Ferrari Eastie? Panaristi, Ferrari Easy, because I mean, Panerai is a watch brand that's made in Italy, or it's an Italian company. Watches are made in Switzerland, and if you're a Panerai fan, you're a Panaristi. And if you're a Ferrari fan, are you a Ferrari Easty or something like that, a Ferrari lover? I'm not sure. I, I don't own one yet, so <laughs> I guess I won't know until I own one. But yeah, go ahead. Uh, I added my my one pick that wasn't on the list as far as an underdog Ferrari, but uh, you're free to uh, to give them your best shot. Four underappreciated Ferraris. Four underappreciated. I'll start with the uh, 308 GTP. Uh, well, this is the you're close. This is um, the Quattroporte. 
Well, this one is called, and, and again, I, I don't know all these models, but this is the one. Uh, it's, it's kind of a hybrid. It's the 1974 through 1980 308 Dino GT4. Now, that's the, the car, and it has some background here. Ferrari's release of the 308 Dino GT4 marked several firsts. It was Ferrari's first mid-engine 2 plus 2, the first to be blessed with a four-cam V8, and the first Ferrari, the first new Ferrari GT in 20 years to be designed by anyone other than Pininfarina. It was a Bertone design, and it was uh, controversial then, but more people today are appreciating the wonderful wedge shape. The uh, 308 GT4's engine is reliable, they say, when kept oiled. Most importantly, when it comes to maintenance, the sodium-filled exhaust valves become brittle over time and can break this, risking the budget-breaking expense of an engine rebuild. Replacing the valves would avoid that heartache, and Ferrari, of course, recommends the famous timing belt replacement every 30,000 miles, but according to friendly classic Ferrari forum users, the procedure does not require a full engine removal and they say that clutches need to replace every 20,000 miles that's amazing so not a very durable clutch but the 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 gt4 it it's actually the forerunner i believe to the mondial because it looks a lot like the mondial it's got that same wedgy shape and and the strakes um at the uh right in front of the rear wheels for air intakes because it's um a mid-engine car, because then their next one on the list is the 1980 through 93 Mondial. It replaced the 308 GT4, and it was um, uh, the Maya yeah, as as the GT the 308 GT4 was the first mid-engine two plus two. The Mondial says was the last. Uh, the Mondial uh, Haggerty says is a car that has a solid mechanical service history. If you're buying one, that's what you want to look for. Some buyers avoid the con- uh, convertible Mondial T, which requires an engine drop for its 30,000 mile belt service. The same maintenance on a Mondial QV, however, does not require an engine drop, making it less expensive and labor and less labor intensive. Ferrari produced fewer than 7,000 Mondials. That's interesting in the model's 13-year run, so it's relatively low production. It seems like you kind of see them a lot, though. But despite the limited quantities, good driving examples can be found anywhere from twenty to $35,000. And I know that we featured a Mondial that sold, I believe it was on Bring a Trailer on uh, many episodes ago, and I'm trying to remember what the price was, but it was in that twenty-ish thousand dollars range. Um, it's always kind of been an interesting car, the Mondial. And I always thought that, you know, there, there's something when you're when you're a budget shopper uh, like I am, but budget in the way of value, because um, there's two different ways to approach it. Um, value means that, to my eyes, that you're getting a lot of car for for a fairly low amount of money. And when you buy something like a Ferrari Mondial, you're buying the car that nobody wants. So the prices are going to be low. And does that equate to value or not? I don't know. Because sometimes you think like, oh, he's just a Ferrari wannabe because he's got a Mondial. He doesn't have a 308, uh, you know, GTB like you were talking about or something like that. So I don't know. Um, How close have you come, Lou? Or have you ever even come close to buying a Ferrari? Well, let me answer your question. Um, I haven't come close to buying a Ferrari. Um, I have these things called kids, but... (laughs) Well, they're getting older. (laughs) Right. And and, as that hopefully... Maybe they'll buy me the Ferrari. 
Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, if the channel continues to grow and you know the the fortunes work in that way, would would I be interested in a Ferrari? Uh, absolutely. Would you buy a new one or a used one? Uh, I think more like yourself. I think you phrased it best. Maybe a value yeah. deal, meaning that if you get a used Ferrari, generally it's not going to go down in value. No, and 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 usually. It, it will have been maintained because I think the yeah. kind of owner that owns a car like that is going to take care of it. And I don't think there's any way you could go wrong with a 308 GTB any day of the year. And we've highlighted those before on the channel right. or so, on the so, podcast here. So, yeah. So when, if you buy it, you know, there's a high probability and you take care of it and maintain it well, then you might just be able to, sell it at some point for what you bought it sure. for. That's, That's all I ever expect with a car, and it never happens, but um, I always, you know, the least I would hope for is if I buy a car like that, that I at least get my money out of it. I'm not looking to make a profit or anything like that. Of course, like I said, it's never happened with any of the collector cars I've owned. I've never made a profit or any money on any of them. I've lost money, but um, it also depends on, you know, when you're looking at like a C4 Corvette like mine that's for sale right now, or a Ferrari. It's two different animals. Two more um, Ferraris on Haggerty's list that are underappreciated at the moment, according to them. The 2000 to 2004 360 Modena. Now, that is a nice car, and they are actually, um, I think the last time I looked at them, maybe a 50, 60,000-ish range. Uh, said, for the first time, Ferrari put an all-aluminum chassis beneath the skin, which improved the car's torsional rigidity, cut out 160 pounds of overall weight for an overall curb weight of just 3,291 pounds. The 3.6-liter V8 engine is utterly remarkable. With a six-speed manual, it achieves 0 to 60 in 4.4 seconds, and that would be the classic, you know, gate shifter which everyone loves and the 360 Modena tops out at 190 186 miles an hour or 300 kilometers an hour and then the uh, fourth uh, underappreciated Ferrari on their list is a car that I'm not real crazy about just because I don't think the styling is all that great but the 2009 to 2014 Ferrari California and they say that many people claim the California isn't a real Ferrari because it's the first front-engine V8 model um, and for some, it's 453 horsepower failed a while. But those, uh, but uh, those who say that have most likely have never driven one. Uh, I'm going to pause you for a second. Yeah. What did you say? Something about 450. 453 horsepower, and people think that's not enough. Okay. And I said, aside from its front engine configuration, the California was also the first production Ferrari to offer a dual clutch gearbox, which is a good thing, and the first to use a folding metal roof. So that is the hybrid between, you know, a soft top and a, and a fixed hard top. That can be a, a negative or a positive, depending on how you look at it. Its styling is a nod to the 1957 250 GT California, which is clear. Uh, in the bonnet vent placement and its uh, shapely upturned rear haunches. Um, those cars are still pretty pricey, I think. It's more of like the Hollywood uh, Boulevard Cruiser uh, type of uh, car, the California. My most underappreciated Ferrari pick is the car that I almost bought five years ago before I bought the Aston Martin. And I believe it was an 81 or an 82. I can't remember the exact day or date. Was it a uh, 512? It was a, no, oh, no, that would have been awesome. Now, it was the redheaded stepchild of the Ferrari family, the 400i. Now, that is a two-door, four-passenger coupe. 
front engine V12 rear wheel drive came in both uh, manual and automatic. The automatic does it, like a, does it look like a sedan? It looks like a sedan. It's very squared off. It has yeah. kind of a low front end, which is kind of pointed. Then it has kind of a tall greenhouse, and then it has a slightly raked rear window and then a trunk. So it almost is like a three box with a little bit of styling to it. I've always liked the look of the car. I think it's a neat looking car. The fact that it's got a V12 is great. There's no timing belts. There's a timing chain, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, the one I was looking at was actually an automatic, which was detrimental to the price. Uh, or, or collectability, but that automatic was actually a, a GM Turbo Hydromatic 400. So I thought I actually went to the the, the um, when I was thinking about buying this car. I actually went to the uh, extent that I called a local transmission shop and said, you know, I'm looking at this car it has a Turbo Hydromatic 400. I'm sure there were changes that Ferrari did, but still being a Turbo Hydromatic 400, would you be able to service that and rebuild it if necessary? And they indicated they would be able to so uh i wasn't real scared about that it just didn't align the car needed work but it wasn't wasn't that bad and i could have gotten it very very cheaply um the prices on the 400 eyes range anywhere from for a decent one right now between maybe 40 and sixty thousand dollars i could have gotten mine very cheap i mean i was in the ten thousand dollar range but the car had been off the road for a while. It probably needed five to six thousand dollars worth of mechanical work. I priced an exhaust eight thousand dollars for the exhaust, and I just I think I made the right decision buying the 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 Alf or the uh, Aston Martin. But I still like four hundred eyes. You don't see them very often on this list. The four that Haggerty talked about, I'd either take the three hundred and sixty Modena or the Mondial. I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for Mondals. I don't know why. It's kind of an odd-looking car being a 2 plus 2, but they are affordable, and it still has a V8 in it, and you can never go wrong with a Ferrari V8. So that's the way I look at it. But do you have any friends that have Ferraris? Because I actually, right now, I don't have any of my car guy friends that, that own a Ferrari. I'm sure you probably have a couple of high flyers that own more than one. I've got, I've got some flyers who have Ferraris. And do they ever let you drive them? Or have you driven yeah. a Ferrari? Because I've never yeah. even driven one. Yeah, um, I'm going to answer your question two ways. Yes, I've driven a Ferrari. It's a wonderful thing to do. I think you know, it's a wonderful thing to do. Drive your '58 Impala. It's a wonderful thing to drive your Challenger. I mean, you know, it's just a treat to drive a lot of cars. Oh yeah. <laughs> but but to answer your question, uh, two Ferrari drives that come to mind, and both of them are on the channel. One is a uh, Ferrari Dino. Mm-hmm. Where the gentleman said, uh, "Lou, yeah, we're out in the hills, and would you like to take the car through the paces through the hills?" Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 I would. Actually, I, I would really like to. So, and it was a gated shifter for me. Yeah. That was important. I'd never driven a Ferrari with a gated shifter. And then the second Ferrari I drove, which is also on the my car story with Lou YouTube channel. Surprisingly, it didn't get a lot of views. Uh, but the people at Extreme Experience were extremely kind mm-hmm. and asked me to come on out and video uh, any car I wanted to drive and uh, run it on the track and just share that, you know, they were uh, hosting it. And I said, so what kind of cars do you have? And they said, well, we have a Lamborghini Oricon. Mm. I said, that sounds nice. <laughs> and they said, we have a, a Ferrari a 458. Uh, and we have a Ferrari 488, which is the 458 with the turbos. Yeah. And I said, and I can drive wow. any one of these. They're like, yeah, whatever you'd like. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'd like the Oricon, and I'd like the 488. Wow. So 
Uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm just sharing what's on the video, but you have a driver instructor with you. They don't just let you, you know, drive away and drive out the parking lot. And uh, the driver instructor said, and I don't think, you know, sometimes when you go to the hairdresser, at least when I was much younger, they'd say, you have the nicest hair. You know, I, don't I think still get that because I do, but it's <laughs> a topic for another uh, podcast. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> That's awesome. But But my point is that, so he said, Lou, you had one of the fastest times out here on the track. Wow. The Lou, the hot shoe. Yeah. Yeah. So that was. Uh, and uh, real quick. What, that was enjoyable. Which one yeah. did you like better, the Lambo or the Ferrari? Because to me, from what I've read and understood, the Lambo is more visceral, I think. And the Ferrari is a little bit more refined. But I might be completely off on that, too, since I've never um, actually experienced either of those cars and, you know, as a driver. But. Well, the Lamborghini is, in my opinion, the closest thing I've come to driving a video game. Really? Huh. Yeah, it didn't seem like I was driving a car. It felt really? Like I was sitting in a video game. Huh? Yeah. That's disappointing. Just the way you sit back and the, the windshield's away from you. Yeah. And you know, it looks like more of a screen yeah. that you're looking at rather than an actual outside of a car. And then when you're driving and the, the gauges are all, you know, digital, so you mm -hmm. feel like you just, you know, threw some quarters in and you're ready to go. Almost like a race simulator. Um, or, or that just shows how old I am. Now they just have swipe cards or something, or yeah. no cards. They just yeah. go in and have a wristband. But uh, And then the 488 felt more like uh i was engaged you know you're really okay yeah huh. you're 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 driving this you know what it is and ready go <laughs> i would just think that thing is like a rocket with those turbos on there um uh when you step on it you're you, you know you know it's taking off yeah. but uh, uh because of the fact that it's so you know, newer, newer meaning 2015 or earlier, you know, so well balanced Yeah. that, that you don't, it doesn't overwhelm like, you. Well, let me use, for example, your new challenger. Yeah. You know, you, you have lots of horsepower in that more than probably any muscle car of the areas of the seventies. And yet it doesn't feel as overpowering maybe as when you were back in the seventies and the rear end was going left because you had bias ply tires on. Yeah. No know. traction control, no stability program. Yeah, it's so well balanced yeah. that you feel comfortably in control. And that's what the, both cars, I felt very comfortably in control, probably over comfortably, mm -hmm. meaning that you're almost a little overconfident, but, uh, uh, you know, so make me overconfident in a Ferrari on a race track, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, this, this, is, this, this day doesn't get me better. Wow. Wow. Well, that's cool. I'm glad we, you know, we got to talk about Ferraris every now and then on the show, and we do do that uh, from time to time. And we're at the point in the program here where we talk about a car that's been uh, for sale, recently sold uh, via online uh, sale or auction. And the exact opposite of a Ferrari, Lou. This one is a 1966 NSU Spider. Now, you're probably scratching and going, uh, what? Black Widow Spider? Uh, Daddy Longlegs? No, an NSU Spider. NSU was a German company. They actually became part of Audi um, in the, uh, I don't know when, uh, late 60s, early 70s maybe. But they were actually producing the rotary engine uh, in production cars. And they, they, that's basically what killed the company because they had a lifetime warranty on their rotary engine, if I recall correctly, to instill confidence in their buyers. And that's before they had the, the tip seals um, 
perfected on the rotaries and basically they had so many warranty claims that the company went bust of course mazda took basically their design refined it fixed the uh you know resolved the tip seal problem and you know the rx7 well the early rx is the rx2 rx3 but then of course the rx7 was the ultimate of the of the progression of the rotaries but nsu did it back in the 60s they had several models. This was the Spider, so it's a small two-door um, coupe. And when I say small, I mean small. I mean, to most people, it almost looks a little bit like an Amphicar, just in the size and, and just the dimensions and the way that the windshield comes up and everything. And it's based on the Sport Prins. Now, the Sport Prins was another rotary uh, NSU, and it had a hard top, basically, like a fastback. A really cool-looking car. These were rotary engine, rear-wheel drive, rear engine, rear, rear drive. This one came out of a uh, museum uh, in California, so it sold for $35,000, so it's in perfect condition. That's a pretty good price for an NSU uh, rotary Winkle. 21,000 miles shown on the odometer, 498cc single rotary Winkle uh, engine, single rotor uh, rotary, four-speed uh, transmission. And I actually had, I never drove one or even heard one run, but... Back about 35 years ago, a friend of mine and I um, went up to Wisconsin because somebody had a Sport Prince for sale. I think he had a couple of NSUs, actually, but he had a Sport Prince. And um, it was a cool car. I can't remember what he was asking for it or anything, but they just don't come up very often. You don't see them too often. You never see them at car shows or anything. And uh, the sound of that engine has to be just something, a little 500cc single rotor, uh, rotary engine um, humming along. But thirty five grand uh, for the price, hammer price, at bring a trailer uh, for the 1966 NSU Spider. Now, let me go out on a limb here, Lou. I bet you don't have an NSU Spider or an NSU Rotary on your, on your YouTube channel. I do not. You don't? Wow. That's a challenge, then. To try to find one because I think it'd be a neat car. They're, oh yeah, they're 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 totally quirky. They look pretty conventional. They're not real odd looking, but they're small. But just the fact that they have that rotary engine in them is really really the special thing. The other cool rotary that uh, NSU made was uh, a model called the RO80, and it's kind of abbreviated the Row 80. And it looks a little bit like an Audi from the late 60s. It's a good-looking car. It's a four, four-door sedan, very sleek-looking, very ahead of its time. And that had, a, had the rotary engine in it, too. And that's the one that sold in fairly good quantities for a company like NSU, and that's the one that pushed them over the edge with the warranty claims. But that's another car that's pretty hard to find, too. If you ever get a chance to see a rotary, an RO80, NSU RO80, uh, anywhere, even in pictures, check it out because I think you'll be um, uh, interested in seeing um, what that car looks like. It was a neat stuff. So NSU, just one of those. They made some really awesome motorcycles, too, back in the day in the 50s and early 60s. So uh, kind of a neat um, car company to uh, take into consideration if you ever want to do some. If you're just sitting at, a, at home during a lockdown on a rainy day and you don't have anything else to do, look up NSU, and you'll uh, find some very cool automobiles and motorcycles that the company made. If you like the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive, be sure to check out some of the other fine programs on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Like the show, back to you. It's an OPI show. Legendary Chicago TV personalities Howard Sudbury and Steve 
Baskerville talk about their daily adventures and the long list of things that get under their skin. You can listen to Back to You on Spotify. You can check it out also on opishows.com or wherever you find podcasts. Just search for Radio Misfits, and that's where you'll find us. The Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive. Mark Vernon, along with uh, Lou Costable, thanks so much for taking us along for the ride. Certainly glad to have you with us. And, Lou, this is something we've talked about from time to time, um, changing demographics in the car collector world. Uh, This comes from an editorial from Richard Lentinello, who is the editor at uh, Hemmings uh, Classic Car Magazine. Now, it's funny, too, a very quick aside. Five, six years ago when I started my search for a Saab 96 again, as I owned uh, three of those previously or two of those previously, um, and I decided I wanted another one, I found one for sale online, and lo and behold, it was Richard Lentinello's Saab 96. I was, I called him on the phone. I'm talking to him and the way he's talking and, and, and he, and, and the way he's, he's referring to things. And I'm like, wait a minute, are you the Richard Lentinello from Hemmings? And he goes, yeah, I am. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I did not end up buying his car, but it was neat to, to actually talk to the guy that you see his picture in the magazine all the time. But anyway, he kind of covers, um, uh, five or six different categories here of cars and how they relate to the current demographics, at least in his eyes. So I'll just kind of breeze through them quickly and feel free to jump in at any time. The brass era, uh, he says, there is growing interest afoot for the nineteen pre-1916 era automobile. In fact, the older the cars, the more desirable they have become. However, it's not the guys in their 60s and 70s who are interested in these simple mechanical contrivances. No, it's the millennials. He said, yes, the millennial generation car enthusiasts have a deep interest in very early automobiles. Now, I don't agree with that at all because I have not seen that anywhere at any car show I've ever been to. I have not seen a single young person walk up to a Ario Speedwagon or a 1910 Packard or whatever and go, wow, I want one of those. That, that one I don't agree with. Um, I guess it depends on where you're at because I would agree with you that I don't see uh, – I think prices are reflecting that. I mean, you know, those cars are starting to – first of all, I mean, you don't even, even know how to start it. Well, exactly. Right? They're hard to drive. They're, they're not fun to drive. The Maintenance is a, is a bear. You can't get parts for them. I mean, what would be the allure of even wanting a car like that? Yeah, I, I have – I have, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm kind so, of biased. I will admit that I've never really had any interest in those really early cars. I mean, I like them, again, from the historical standpoint, because I do love history, but that's it. I don't want to own one. I, don't, I can't really – I just can't get that enthused about them. So I don't know where, where he, he comes off on that, but maybe it's something he sees as the editor of, of, of Hemming's Classic Car. But you seem to agree with me that you haven't seen anyone going gaga over these things. So. Well, I'll, I'll even add one one step further to it. You know, when I throw a car up, and to your point, I like the histo- history of cars too. So when someone has a car from the 20s or the 1900s, uh, you know, or uh, 1910 or a, a 1920 car uh, or even a 30s car, uh, it just doesn't get as much press 
uh, on my channel. Now, yeah. it could be that most people know when they watch my channel, they're probably going to get a great muscle car uh, or something, you know, fun and exotic. So, you know, it could be my audience, too. So I don't want to just say that blanketly, but when I do throw something up there, it gets very, very low views. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't surprise me, though, because like we just said, that our experiences, we haven't seen the enthusiasm that Lentinello is talking about with the uh, brass era vehicles. He moves on to full classics. He says interest in full classics is starting to wane. He says not that enthusiasts are interested in seeing Auburn's cords and Packard's on show fields. They still are rather, but they have little interest in owning one. It isn't so much these cars, higher values that has caused the lack of attraction rather as enthusiasts have aged more and more of them want to drive old cars that require little maintenance and, above all, are easier to drive. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm getting older. You're getting older. Um, I'm kind of finding my niche with cars, uh, collector, new cars that have to have a mix of luxury and performance. But I think there's something about an Auburn or a Cord or a you know 30s Packard Twin 6. I mean, those are really pretty neat cars and sure they're they're heavy again they're not that easy to drive or that fun to drive necessarily but i certainly see more interest in those cars than the brass era cars but i i see, I, I don't know how strong the interest ever was in those cars too i mean he says it's starting to wane since i've been in the hobby i haven't i don't know anyone personally that has anything older than a probably 1950 car which would be uh you know, 50s cars, not not what they consider a classic. Again, when you when you have these what Lentinello calls a full classic on your channel, it seems like it's pretty much the same. You know, they they attract attention, but not a lot, right? I find that um, you know the 40s cars. You know, when we're talking 40s, we had a war going on, so really you're talking limited. Yeah, five 40, years maybe. 41. That you're lucky you can find a 42. And then it's like 48 and forward, uh, 48, 49, and then a 50. But, but no, I, I do find that, uh, you know, some of those cars do get some attention. Um, but the challenge is now finding them because, um, I, you know, I shared with you, I was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania at the Chrysler Nationals, and I didn't see uh, lots of 40s or 50s cars there. Yeah. I mean, there were some, uh, but not as much as I have seen at, at other times. Well, he says for the 50s cars, bright colors and wild fins have always made cars from the 50s the center of attention at any show they were displayed at. But younger enthusiasts are more interested in the cars they saw on the street when they were growing up. I'll agree with that rather than those cars that their grandparents drove. This new generation isn't very fond of 50s era's road manners, lumbering handling and slow steering either. This growing trend holds true for cars of the 60s too, albeit on a lesser level. The younger people love looking at them. They just don't want to own them. Now, I mean, granted, when I get in my 58 Impala, and I'm not part of the younger generation anymore. I accept the fact that the brakes are going to suck. It's going to be really floaty handling. You know, it, it, it's got slow steering, you know, like 14 turns to lock, stuff like that. But I accept that because that's how they made cars back then. And there's just no denying the visual impact, as, as Lentinello alludes to here, that, you know, they love the way they look. They just don't want to own them. And... That kind of gets into the whole resto mod thing too, which I don't want to get off on a on a tangent as far as that goes. 
but it seems like I have enough of interest, at least like when I have the 58 Impala at our show, I have enough interest in the younger generation looking at them and asking questions, kind of like what, what Lentinello says, but whether they want to own them or not, I don't know. Um, I think there's, there's still a good a supply of those vehicles out there. And they're not all overpriced, especially if you get some of the, the baser models or lesser trim packages or a four-door versus a two-door or something like that. Again, the 50 car, 50s cars on your channel do very well, right, usually? Yeah, the 50s cars do real well. You know, to, to your point there, um, you, you hit it on the head. You know, the 50s, especially the late 50s, you know, the cars are aesthetically looking, you know, are outstanding. You know, so, I mean, they, they are really something to look at. So, although that, uh, and, and I'll say one other thing about your 58, which is, you know, pretty much factory original, right? Oh, yeah, it's 100%, yeah. The, the, the thing with that car is it'll at least come close to keeping up on the highway. Oh, yeah, no, it's yeah. a modern car. I mean, that's one thing that that uh, on, the, on the program we've talked about before when we've had our Buick specialist on, Bill Kubik, and he's got a he's a big 58 Buick fan. And we've talked about that before, because sometimes we'll be at a car show and people will go like, yeah, I've, you know, I, I put this electric fan on my car because it, it overheats all the time. And I'm like, and Bill and I look at each other like our cars never overheat. And because by 19, the, the, mid, the mid to late 50s minimum, cars are modern by all means by then, meaning they, they can go 50, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. They can drive all day without breaking down or overheating. And they're not, you know, I've had the, the Impala out on, you know, not, not a cross-country trip, but, but Bill brings his 58 Buick all over the U.S. He drives it cross-country all the time. And his car is box stock. So I think that's a misnomer, kind of like what you said, that people don't realize that these cars can perform in certain ways right as good as a modern a truly modern car does yeah i mean and to your point you know you realize you know this is not a a 58 impala is not a track ready special car you're not going to be cornering no i don't expect it to handle or do a slalom or anything you're gonna right you're gonna you're gonna cruise but yet it it'll 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 get there at its own pace and its own time and, and place and it's kind of nice to actually have a car that actually soaks up bumps <laughs> versus so many cars these days you know have shorter wheelbases they ride firmer and stuff and you get into a you know a 58 uh, impala a 58 buick limited it's like bump what bump <laughs> but um uh, Richard Lentinello goes on to talk about muscle cars. I actually agree with what he says here. He says there'll always be a fairly large core of uh, large core audience lusting after uh, you know muscle cars, Detroit, Detroit street machines with triple carburetion, large displacement V8s. But due to the car's lofty values, which thankfully have started to de- decrease of as of late, enthusiasts instead are now looking at later model muscle cars as alternatives. Which I do agree with because a lot of these muscle cars, resto mods, the prices are out of sight and. He says cars such as 70s eras Novas and Dusters, 80s built Camaros and Firebirds, Grand Nationals and Fox Body Mustangs are becoming noteworthy substitutes. And that is definitely a trend that I've seen and I agree with. And even, you know, he said 80s built Camaros and Firebirds, but throw my 75 Firebird in there, too. I mean, that's a later model muscle car, which is still affordable, looks great, attracts a ton of attention, drives well and hasn't, you know, become super unbelievably crazy priced so i do agree with what he what he says there and you see that all the time i know on on my car story with lou 
you have a lot of like 80s Fox body Mustangs and and, you know, cars like that, that people love and they get good reaction. Well, you know, that goes back to what you were saying. These are cars that they remember. Yeah. That, again, too, I will agree with that. That's what he said, too. Yeah. You always want to. Uh, I think, at least in the beginning, when you're collecting cars, you want to go back to your roots. Bill, our 58 Buick specialist, likes 58s because his family had those cars when he grew up. Um, you know, my dad was into import cars, so that's kind of where my love of imports came from. So you want that stuff, at least early on in your collecting career, to replicate the stuff that you remember. And that is why 80s and even 90s cars now are starting to pick up some some decent value. And we'll, we'll segue right into that. And in the 80s, he says, the fastest growing segment of the collector car hobby now is what has been endearingly referred to as the malaise era cars. And he says, this signifies American cars produced from around the mid-70s to the mid-80s. And that's when American Car quality was just absolutely horrendous. We're talking about, you know, stuff as, as mundane as, you know, Chevy Chevettes and Ford Pintos and Vegas and things like that. And he says we're talking about Pacers, SVO Mustangs, MKV Continentals, Aspens, Omnis, Hornets, and even Chrysler K cars. And he says, and why not? They're easy to drive, comfortable, and most importantly, highly affordable. Um, he says, in fact, the most popular models at the moment are 1977 to 85. GMB and E-body cars, with the later Buick Riviera convertibles being especially desirable. We highlighted, or at least I, maybe when I did one of the solo podcasts, Lou, I talked about a Pacer that was recently sold for like $30,000 on Bring a Trailer, and it was a Pacer X fully restored, but who in their right mind would have ever thought that a Pacer would clear thirty grand on the resale market? I mean, that's just insane. I can see an SVO Mustang going for bigger money. Aspens and Omnis, I don't know about that. Hornets, I could see being relatively hard to find, so they might command a little bit of a premium. A Chrysler K car, I don't know if that's really quite there yet. I mean, how about stuff like a Chevy Beretta or, um, you know, the Fieros from the late 80s? You know, those are cars that I, that are, you know, fill in, fit into that era, but, um, you know, actually I think have more collector value than some of the things that he mentioned there. Yeah, it's um, um, I, again. It goes back to what you said. It's what people remember, what they want to see, and you know that's that's what they want to do. They want they want to drive something that they used to remember seeing. Yeah, or or you know driving as their first car. I think the first car that I drove would have been uh, our family's '69 Buick Sabre. That was the handy hand me down car. That I got, and then then I segued into sobs. Um, so that's quite a segue. But uh, and then the last uh, thing that Richard Lentinello talks about here, and I do agree with this because I have seen seen this happening, is Japanese cars. He said, along with this injection of youthfulness comes a newfound awareness and appreciation for Japanese cars. Uh, Datsuns and Toyotas, Mazdas, and late-model turbocharged Subarus, there's a fast-growing cult-like following for these compact-sized, reliable cars. And now that early Miatas are eligible to, dis to be displayed at AACA events, you'll be seeing more uh, not only shown but restored in the coming uh, years, bringing to them much-needed new blood enthusiasm in the uh, collector car hobby. I think one thing that kind of uh, has increased the um, enthusiasm for Japanese cars, too, is a lot of the cool uh, Japanese domestic market cars, JDM cars, uh, things like the Skylines, 
or the uh, what they call the K cars, K E I, I believe is the spelling. The really micro cars. A lot of those are eligible to be imported now because they're over twenty five years old, and you can bring them in no problem. And I think I've been seeing more and more of those kind of cars at shows too. And I think that's really helped burn on the interest in uh, Japanese cars. But who doesn't love a classic like Datsun 240Z? I mean, that's a beautiful car. Yeah, they're, uh, you know, no doubt they're they're cool cars. I mean, uh, I think the other thing that people are respecting, the Japanese, the early, um, they are, you know, when I say early, the 70s cars in the Japanese, is that, that, that you know, it's, they're undeniably reliable from an engine standpoint, mm-hmm. you know. We, we we didn't like them because they were imports and they weren't American, or so it seemed. But now uh, the group of Toyota, Honda, uh, Lexus, Infiniti owners, Nissan, are realizing, hey, these are great cars. And, and granted, they might have had some rust issues, but if we can get past that and solve that uh, with these aftermarket parts, et cetera, then, then we still got a real dependable, reliable car that, hey, who would have thought? We actually turned the key and it starts. And, and, and to... Um underscore the point that there's this newfound uh, appreciation for these Japanese cars. I read recently that the uh, that Toyota is starting to reproduce a very limited number of mechanical parts for the uh, Toyota 2000 GT, which was that absolutely beautiful sports car they made in the late 60s. They only made a, a very small production number. I think it was something like 500 or 700 of them, but um, they're, they're worth big bucks. They all go for like, you know, easily three four hundred thousand dollars but uh they're starting to actually reproduce a handful of mechanical parts for those cars so that means that the demand is there for them to do that and they're recognizing their heritage i think that's one thing that european makers have been very good at is recognizing their heritage and continuing to support owners of the you know the truly classic cars mercedes is a a leader in that and it seems like the japanese marks are starting to pick up on that to some extent as well, which is good for the collector car market, uh, certainly. But just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, changing demographics as Richard Lentinello, the editor of the um, magazine Hemmings Classic Car, thought, and then what Lou and I thought about what we've seen in our uh, attendance at car shows, talking to our friends, Lou with his uh, My Car Story uh, with Lou on YouTube and just us doing the podcast here, too. So it was a good discussion about that. Uh, just so you know, Lou, I know we're talking to each other here on the phone, but we have sanitized all our OPI shows for your protection and mine. And, uh, of course, we're wearing our masks as we do this uh, podcast as well. We're helping to prevent the spread of COVID-19 by following the CDC guidelines. We'll be saving the world just as we are, and we're also washing our hands after every episode and between every episode as well. Uh, We've got to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back after this. On this week's Minutia Men with Rick and Dave. Dead people tweeting from the grave. Things you don't want to find at the bottom of a porta potty. Hey, are those tiger balls? My brush with a great Beatles-related celebrity. And a snippet from our interview with Jeffrey Gentili, author of Mob Adjacent. Listen to Minutia Men on Spotify, opishows.com, or wherever you find podcasts. Just search for Radio Misfits. Come meet your new friends, Tommy. Kimmy. Sam. Right here with Ant Friends. On this week's episode of Ant Friends, I bring back Florida Man. That's right. 
He's back! Along with a UK season of Horny Spiders. And I teach everyone what a cloaca is. It's gonna be all that and more on And Friends. Listen to And Friends on Spotify, opashows.com, or wherever you find podcasts. Just search for Radio Misfits. And we're back here on the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive, Mark Vernon, along with Lou Costable. Uh, Lou, one more uh, final topic before we get to the My Car Story with Lou Car Guys Report guessing game. And again, you know, at the top of the show, we talked about Ferraris, which we tend to talk about every now and then. And the only reason we talk about Aston Martins, well, not the only reason, but one of the big reasons is because I own one. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this uh, I found online and it was um, the author was talking about the Aston Martin DB7 GT reminds us why it's the best forgotten V12 coupe of the early 2000s. Now, I have a Aston Martin 2002 DB7. It's not the GT, which is a, a slightly um, amped up version of the of the standard DB7. The, the GTs are very hard to find, but I always like reading these types of articles because you're getting one person's impression, and I always want to see if it lines up with my impressions of actually owning that same car. And he says here, just highlighting a couple of things in the article, he says, overshadowed by the bigger, faster James Bond-endorsed first-generation Vanquish was the sharper, more truly dramatic DB9 that followed. The DB7, and I say this all the time when I have car shows, the DB7 is the car that saved Aston Martin from total dissolution. It languishes in, it languishes in relative obscurity. I wouldn't exactly say that, but they're certainly affordable. And it is the first steel-bodied Aston Martin. So obviously that uh, was uh, done because they could mass-produce these cars more easily. It still has plastic front fenders, a plastic trunk lid. They tried a plastic hood in the earlier models, but they had trouble with it warping because it's such a big piece. So they went back to steel on that. And it's when Ford owned them. So Ford obviously uh, put a big infusion of cash into the company, built this car. And at the time, it was the most mass-produced Aston ever. I think total DB7 production was something like, the V12s was something like 4,400 or so models. So mass production in quotes. But um, what they say here is um, they basically took uh, a design that was uh, originally going to be the replacement for the Jaguar XJS. And what they did was they kind of uh, decided they weren't going to do a, a new XJS. So they said the study was quickly adapted into a sleek new Grand Tourer fit for production under a ludicrously tiny budget of just $30 million. When the DB landed, DB7 landed in, two, in 1994, it was a supercharged uh, six-cylinder inline engine they had in that. It was immediate sales success in 1994, inspiring Jaguar to cry, hey, wait a minute, no surprise, Jaguar developed a version uh, of the same XJS platform into the visually similar uh, XK in 1996. And they do. The XK uh, Jaguar and the uh, DB7 do look very similar. And that's why when most people see my car and they don't know what it is, they their first guess is a Jaguar. But after the first uh, models uh, came out in 1994, the DB7 starting in 1999, they uh, acquired the 5.9-liter V12, and uh, the engine uh, output obviously went up. They say 414 horsepower and 400 pound-feet of torque. Uh, my 2002 has 420 horsepower, 400 pound-feet of torque, and I have the six-speed Tremec T56 manual, which is correct. They also had a five-speed uh, automatic. 
They said by the end of its life in 2004, the company sold, they say, a total of, of 7,000 DB7s. That would be from the beginning of production. Like I said, the um, uh, V12 cars accounted for about 4,400 of that 7,000. But this is a, a crazy fact, Lou, to show how low Aston Martin production has been since the car uh, company was founded in 1914. It says... Um, the total of 7,000 DB7s made up nearly one-third of Aston Martin's total production of 22,000 cars since 1914. <laughs> That's just amazing when you, when you, uh, when you put it in, in terms like that. Now, he says of, of the aforementioned special editions, um, the DB7 GT sat at the top of the heap. My only uh, comment here was it's rare, very hard to find. Uh, they said extensive performance upgrades over the regular Vantage. They said the GT's biggest upgrade was the chassis. It revised damper settings along with suspension mounts and front lower wishbones. Received uh, stiffer bushings, a reworked front subframe, bump stops, and an additional rear brace uh, in the back. And they said bigger brakes. Uh, I mean, the brakes that are on my car, they're Brembo's, four-piston Brembo's all the way around. I think they're fantastic uh, uh, brakes. So that shows that you hit one level of performance, then what do you do to, to get higher? But let's get to the meat of this thing. Um, he says that in person, the DB7 has aged tremendously well, which I would say it's a, a gorgeous-looking car. It's not as dramatic as the succeeding DB9, but where the DB9 might be a touch dated, the DB7 remains one of the most handsome and understated designs of the 1990s, and I would agree with that. It, it escaped successfully from the decade without any of the undue body cladding and adornment that commonly accompanied cars of its era. Its curvaceous, swept-back, organic lines are a welcome sight in this day of overly styled hyper-wedges and swollen, fat-ass luxury coupes. And he says here that uh, if you're looking to buy one or thinking about one, he says, uh, it's at first Aston developed under uh, Ford's purview, and he said, I prepared myself for some egregious off-the-shelf componentry pulled from other Ford models, which is true. There's a lot of Jaguar switchgear inside there. Some of the pieces are kind of kind of cheap, plasticky. I mean, the new, the new Aston Martins don't have any of that, but, but the DB7s definitely do. He says, thick, plush leather covers the majority of the interior surfaces. That is true, but I wouldn't exactly call it plush. It's thick, but it's not exactly plush. Plushed. But I do love, you know, having the entire interior swathed in leather, you know, the dashboard, the center console, the door panels, the seats. It's it's really nice. It's got an Alcantara headliner, so that's not leather. But he says the thick, overly thick Ford source steering wheel is a little out of place. I wouldn't agree with that. I, I can't really tell that it was Ford sourced. I don't know which car it came from, but um, it works for me. I've always thought it's a nice meaty steering wheel. And he says here, this is this is totally true. And I've said this before, Lou, especially when um, I think the car was on your channel in the DB7 G GT. And I would say in any and in any DB7 V12, it seems like no matter what gear, no matter what the speed, there is enough twist to carry you well into jail time speeds. And I would definitely say that is true. Famously, this is the same model in which Top Gear, the show Top Gear, demonstrated how it's capable of starting from a dead stop in fourth gear to a top gear speed of 135. And he said that was no camera trick. They literally started off in fourth gear, and the car had enough torque 
to get the car all the way up to 135 without stalling out or shuttering or anything like that. And they say that the Aston Martin DB7 GT is not explosive like many modern supercars and GTs, but it offers a bottomless pool of smooth forward momentum without the omnipresent threat of big power on oversteer that play that plagues high-power forced induction offerings from the past few years, and I would definitely agree with that. Steering isn't sharp. I think it's good. I like it. It's well-weighted and on-center, which it is, and you want that in a car that pulls double duty as both a Canyon Carver and long-distance cruiser. The clutch isn't overly heavy or difficult to modulate. It's a little heavy, but not too bad. The brakes are merely intuitive and strong. I would agree with that. And he says, he's not exaggerating. These things are relatively cheap, really cheap. And I said, yes, but no mention of the six-speed being hard to find and very desirable. He said, if you're happy with a supercharged inline six, not picky with colors, a DB7 coupe of some variety can easily be had below the $30,000 mark. And he said, that's a shockingly good deal for a bona fide Aston Martin that never stickered for less than 140 grand when new. If you must have the V12, expect to pay in the high 30s for a more for a cleaner, well-kept example, but again, he doesn't distinguish between the, the five-speed automatic and the six-speed manual. The six-speed manual is rare, hard to find, and way more desirable than the automatic, and it should command somewhat of a premium. But he said that it's a small price to pay for a beautiful, fast, historically important car that saved Aston Martin, and to that I said, yes. So now that I'm done pontificating, Lou, do you have anything to add to that uh, long-winded uh, uh, session by yours truly. Mark, obviously there is nothing to add to what you said. Okay. I think I just woke you up, right? Lou, wake up. Huh? No, no, what? no. No, I know. When you were speaking, I was actually thinking of the person who wrote the article. <laughs> I, I give them an A-plus for the English language because they were using terms that I've never even thought of in my mind. I was like, wow, that's an interesting way to look at that. So, yeah, no, I mean... Uh, um, I just wanted I just wanted to compare it to what this guy who I don't know who he is saying these are my impressions of the DB7 GT and how I compare it to my DB7 which is not a GT but overall I would give him uh you know 85 to 90% of what he said uh, with his impressions would jive with with what I agreed with. So I just found that interesting because it's always interesting to see what other people think of of the same car that you own. Oh yeah. And and they might think something completely different. And it's that's why it's it's entertaining to uh, bring up something like that. If you like uh, if you like our uh, podcast, it's called the Car Guys Report Informed Automotive. Be sure to tell a friend. You can catch us on Spotify, opishows.com, or wherever you find podcasts. Just search for Radio Misfits. Uh, Misfits. You can get us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Android, Blueberry, and iHeartRadio. And when you do, please subscribe. You'll get an automatic push notification whenever there's new uh, content, and that would be every Tuesday on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. You can also leave us some feedback. We'd love to get uh, a couple more positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. And just remember, too, podcasting is all about you. Nobody else but you, wherever you're listening, whatever you're listening on. If you're listening in your car, on your phone, on your tablet, on your desktop, whenever you want to listen, we're there. You can fast forward, rewind, replay, delete, do anything you want, anywhere you want. That's the beauty of podcasting. And every podcast available on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network is free, including the Car Guys Report. Informed Automotive, a friend of mine used to say, Lou, that... 
that uh, my uh, advice is free and worth every penny. So there you go. We're at the point in the program where we get to play the Car Guys Report guessing game. I knocked it out of the park last episode three for three. That doesn't happen too often, so we'll see if I can continue or fall flat on my face with this round of the Car Guys Report guessing game. Take it away, Mr. Lou Costable. So in case someone's the first time they're here listening to the show and uh, how this game works is I have a YouTube channel and on three cars that were posted in the same week, uh, they are going to get views. And based on views, the one that has the most views is obviously the gold star. The one that has the second most is the silver. And, of course, the last one would be the bronze. So there's no rhyme or reason to this. You could video the same car on the same day. We could both put it on YouTube and get completely different results. But we're just going on the ones from the YouTube channel that I have called My Car Story with Lou. So... Uh, I also usually do the oldest car first uh, and then go to the newest car. So this one is going to be easy to do the oldest and the newest, and you'll see in a second. But um, two of these cars are very high. Okay. And one of, one of them is a dog. Okay. So, oh, wow. So, so let me give you that to begin with. All right. So two of them will be um, winners, and one of them wasn't even close. So... Uh, in order of oldest to the youngest, we start with a 1957 Pontiac Bonneville convertible that is fuel injected. Super rare car. Super rare car. Number two, 1969 Ford Fairlane Cobra in black jade with a 428 engine. Number three, the 2020 Mercedes-Benz AMG GTR Pro in black with V8 engine sound. So I'll go over those one more time. You, the listener, can guess your guesses. A 57 Pontiac Bonneville convertible that is a fuely, a fuel-injected engine. Second one is a 69 Ford Fairlane Cobra in black jade with a 428 engine. And the last one in this list, the 2020 Mercedes-Benz AMG GTR Pro in black with a V8 engine. Now, um, engine sounds on the Mercedes? Say that again? Engine? Oh, yeah, engine sound, yes. Okay, and, and and was a 69 Fairlane, you said, with a Cobra jet engine? A 69 Ford Fairlane Cobra with a black, uh, in black jade with a 428, and I believe it is a 428 Cobra jet yeah, engine. Yeah, yeah, because I, I don't know, when you said Cobra, I was I was confused, because I, I, I didn't think... Well, black... Was it a special edition or what? Make sure you have an educated guess, Mark. I don't want to be, you know, taking advantage of the situation, not giving a description. So the Cobra logo is on the the body. So it's like... In uh, 69. uh, In 69. And that was factory? Factory. Okay. So a Ford Fairlane, uh, which looks a lot like a Ford Torino with a Cobra... Uh, the, and it's actually called a Ford Fairlane Cobra. Okay. Wow. The twenty-eight engine. Yeah. So, the, all three of these are wows. Um, it's, now, it's now which one came? I'm going to be a little biased here, and I'm, I'm I think I might be wrong, but I've said on the program before I'm not a huge Ford fan. I own a Pontiac and a Mercedes, so <clears throat> let's go with the fifty. Eight. Was it fifty-eight or fifty-seven? 
the Pontiac. 57 fuel-injected Pontiac convertible, number one. Number one. The Mercedes GTR or GT2 and the Fairlane number three. Well, first of all, you got number one exactly on the head. I did. Oh, it means the Mercedes was the dog. Well, the Mercedes was the dog. Wow. And it, wasn't, it wasn't even close. Really? Yeah. Uh, the Pontiac killed it with 29,954 views. The Fairlane Cobra killed it with 25,957 wow. views. Wow. So they were 4,000 views apart from each other. And the Mercedes-Benz in the same week had 898 wow. views. I don't know why, because, I mean, it seems like, you know, a lot of times the modern cars don't do as well on your channel, but that's a really cool car, that, that oh, Mercedes. It, yeah, it's got cool all over yeah, it. Yeah, and it sounds amazing. I mean, that's got that twin-turbo 4-liter four, four V8 in there. That's an incredible engine. And yeah, I, it's just that that's a nasty-looking car. I mean, nasty and good, you know, mean-looking. It's, it's totally cool. So I don't know why that wouldn't catch fire. Well, I, I guess I go back to what I said. You know, if somebody else videoed it, it might have different results. You know, for example, maybe if Shmi, who does a lot of yeah. you know, high-end exotic cars, uh, had it on his channel, I'm sure it would be crushed, you know, versus maybe if he threw out a Pontiac Bonneville fuel, people would be like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> they, would, they wouldn't get it. But uh, where on my channel, there are quite a few 50s and, uh, 60s and 70s uh, muscle cars. So uh, at least on my channel, although I totally agree with you, it's a super cool, amazing car. Just didn't get the uh, just didn't get the love. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that you're you're not neglecting the newer cars though either. You know because there's so much cool stuff out nowadays that um, I'm glad that you're 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 still blending everything together. You know, old right. and new, and 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 very old sometimes, and very new sometimes. So it, it works out. But yeah, that surprises me um, that it wouldn't. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, wouldn't be um, higher than that. But that is a, a pretty big, uh, pretty pretty big spread there between uh, number one and two and number three. But see, that's the fun of this game, Lou. Sometimes I get it right, and sometimes I don't. But at least I got I got one right there. So oh, I'm, you're one. <laughs> You're one for three. If you were a baseball player, yeah, you'd be. That's pretty good. Batting, yeah. Yeah, you'd be in the All Star game. <laughs> there you go. Uh, just in case you're not familiar with Lou's uh, YouTube channel, it's called My Car Story with Lou, and he's got uh, over eighty thousand subscribers, fifteen hundred incredibly cool car videos. Definitely check it out if you can. It's on YouTube. You'll definitely just type in My Car Story with Lou, and that's where you'll find it. And we do play the uh, My Car Story with Lou Car Guys Report guessing game every episode of the Car Guys Report podcast. Thanks so much for taking us along for the ride today. Certainly glad to have had you with us. Coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report, it's a quick look back at the Chevy Suburban, the history of the Chevy Suburban, the very long-running uh, nameplate under the uh, Chevy banner, plus part one of the most fun cars under $40,000. That and more coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report. I'm Mark Vernon along with Lou Costable. Special thanks to executive producer Tony Lasano with opishows.com. Opi is hippo spelled backwards, O-P-P-I-H shows.com. Distributed by Ed Silha with Radio Misfits. Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place, and that would be radiomisfits.com. 
This SoFi podcast was recorded at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. The proceeding was a presentation of Opie Productions. Find our other shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Opie Productions. Tony, can you shut up? If you're a fan of the English Premier League, you'll want to check out Free Kicks with Adam and Rick. As you can hear by his accent, Adam is from England originally. Chelsea fan, if you must know. And he's also an expert in soccer tactics and methods. He's the director of coaching for the Illinois Youth Soccer Association. So obviously, he has some incredible insights into the game. Tune in every week. We're on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. A Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie show. And because it's soccer, we never use our hands. Radio Misfits. If you missed Los Anno or Los Los Anno and friends, here's what you missed. Toilet seats. I always lowered the seat and the cover. Mm -hmm. However, I do argue, I don't sit down all that much. (laughs) You would think I would be the one accidentally falling in, not the person who every single time goes, sit down. Look before you leave. (laughs) On my old TV show, we did this question about asking local media celebrities if they lower the toilet seats. Readers, who do you have? I have Ron Majors. He says, I think the argument gets convoluted by separating the toilet seat from the lid. I would argue that the lid should always be closed. If we accept that the lid should always be closed and that most lids and seats can be operated at either one unit or two, then the answer is easy. Both men and women should close the lid. Either way, we are both performing one function, an equal function. We both lift something to use the toilet and we both close something when we are done. Ron went deep. Wow. Right. What a like, that sounds like he was given that from like the Lincoln Monument. <laughs> <laughs> Radio Misfits. Get more Lozano and Friends. Lozano. Now on Lozano.com. Good luck trying to spell Lozano or whatever it's called. Coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report Informed Automotive, we talk about three super cool Mopars for sale. Which one would you choose? Plus a look back at the enduring Chevy Suburban. I'm Mark Vernon. Join me and Luke Hostable for these stories and more on the Car Guys Report, a Tony Lasano podcast, and Opie production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs> <laughs>